Now, when I was growing up, we knew that Christmas was near when my mum would go to the hall cupboard and she'd open it and she'd get a chair so she could reach the top shelf and she'd search through the impossible amount of boxes on that top shelf. I don't know how so much stuff ended up on one shelf in one cupboard, but it did. And she would shuffle and lift and sort the boxes. She'd bring down one box after another till she found the one she wanted. It was a ragged, battered box with a blue lid that had a plastic window in it. And the box would then be taken lovingly into the lounge and opened and the nativity scene inside would be lifted out and dusted off and carefully positioned in pride of place on the mantle by the fire. And this would happen even before the Christmas tree that was growing in a pot out on the veranda was brought in from the near year-round neglect and exile and adorned with all those baubled and treasured decorations. It was our family tradition so that amidst the tinsel and food, the presents and festivities, the hustle and bustle, that we would be reminded of the reason for the season, the birth of Jesus, God in person, coming, as it says at the beginning of John's Gospel, and tabernacling with us, which is a very New Zealand, very Kiwi Christmas holiday picture, isn't it? Jesus came and pitched his tent in our neighbourhood. When my mum died, we cleaned out her house. And there in a different cupboard, still impossibly packed with boxes and boxes of precious memories, was the battered blue box. Its plastic window ripped and some of the figures looked somewhat worse for wear. I think Mary had lost her head. And the nativity scene was beyond repair. And it actually hurt to throw it out. But Chris bought us a nativity scene for our family that we unpack every year that has pride of place on our coffee table at Christmas. This year it was even taken out onto the lawn at Hope Tikipanga for a photo shoot for the poster for carols on the grass. But that's to remind us of Christmas. And leading into Christmas this year, I want to invite you to join in my family tradition of unpacking the nativity scene and placing it at the centre of our thoughts. Um, now, unpacking is not simply, but not unpacking it not simply by taking the figures out of a box and arranging them in a certain way but unpacking them on a theological level uh, in the sense that we look again and afresh at each of the figures from the scene and look past the way that they've become very stylized caricatures, uh, more at home in children's paintings and the nostalgia of Hallmark cards, more at home there than being real people in real life when our real God stepped into our real world. 
unpacking them to see what they have to say to us as people of faith as we too allow the one born at the stable to have a central life, a central role in our lives as he did in theirs. And this week I want to invite us to reflect on Mary, a woman of faith and courage. And maybe she's the hardest figure for us to unpack, not because she lost her head, but because she had become, she's become a figure of deep religious devotion and adoration. The uh, cover story of a Time magazine in March 2005 reported on the way that Mary was growing in importance even in Protestant circles. Despite this, how she should be honoured has been a focus for division and argument between various Christian traditions. And this perhaps hides a lot of what she has for us today. Now, the best sermon I ever heard about Mary was from a 16-year-old girl from our youth group at St. John's in the city, Rotorua. We went and visited uh, Massey Presbyterian Church in Auckland, and uh, I, uh, I asked Leslie to give the, um, give the message because it was uh, Advent, and Leslie was a gifted speaker, and I asked her to speak on Mary, and the only starter that I gave her for the talk, apart from the Bible passages, was, well, Mary would have probably been a girl about your age. And Leslie really related to that. You see, Mary was a young woman, possibly no more than in her mid to late teens. And Leslie talked of the feelings of fear and uncertainty as the angel's message and, the greater, and also the great amount of trust and faith it took to answer, I am the Lord's servant. May your word uh, to me be fulfilled. Because, see, Mary came from a lowly place. She lived in a small town in a small, unimportant, unimportant province in occupied Israel. In her society, she had little importance, position, or status. In fact, even Luke, who of the gospel writers is most prepared to use women's remembrances and perspectives, starts not by naming her, but referring to the name lineage and occupation of the man she's betrothed to. And she would have been a virtuous Jewish girl. And we can see from her song recorded in Luke that she had a deep faith. And like most Jewish men and women of her time, she would have been praying for the coming of the Messiah to deliver Israel. In Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he reflects that in religious art, Mary is always shown as accepting the angel's visitation like it was a benediction. But that does not reflect the gospel's narrative. It tells us that she was troubled by the angel's message. She's troubled at the angel's affirmation that God is with her and that he has blessed her greatly. And the angel goes on to tell her that she will become pregnant and have a son and name him Yeshua, or as we know him by the Greek equivalent, Jesus. And the angel tells her this child will be the Messiah uh, taking on David's throne and reigning forever. And this does nothing to alleviate her troubled mind. And she also asks, how is it possible for her to have a son as she's a virgin? Now we only think that it's in our sceptical age of science that we would see such a thing as an impossibility. But Mary's grasp of human biology is sufficient that she knows that what the angel is saying is not possible. 
And the angel says that this will happen by a miracle. God's power will rest on her. And the angel then points to another pending miraculous birth. Mary's relative Elizabeth, who was barren and deemed too old to have a child, is now six months pregnant. And the angel concludes, there is nothing that God cannot do. Which is, by the way, a great definition of a miracle. There's nothing that God cannot do. You see, this is a unique God moment. We're like the resurrection. God steps in and exerts his creative power. It is, in actual fact, the coming of the seed of the new creation, the seed that will fall to the ground and die and produce an abundant harvest. And Mary's reply shows her faith. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said so. And as her relative Elizabeth will say to her, how blessed you are to believe that the Lord's message to you will come true. And Mary continues to show her faith in her song, known as the Magnificat, that points to the profound effects that this child will have in God's goodness to his people. She has been described as being the first disciple, declaring the kingdom of God her son will usher in. And her song sets the tone of the whole gospel of Luke. It sets the tone for the upside-down kingdom of God, which is good news for the poor and recovery of sight for the blind, release to the captives, and a declaration of the acceptable year of the Lord. We see that Mary not only has faith, she also has courage. She puts her faith into action. For Elizabeth, there was great rejoicing in praising God for her pregnancy in the birth of her son. Luke tells us her neighbours and relatives rejoiced with her and celebrated the baby's birth. Now in Jewish custom, the village choir would gather and sing for the birth of a baby boy. As this just may be the coming of God's promised Messiah. But for Mary, it was a troubling time. She was a young girl, only betrothed to Joseph, and she was pregnant. And maybe the impact of that has been lost in our society today, where there are many teenage pregnancies and children are born out of, out of a marriage relationship. But in her day, it was a great scandal. Her husband Joseph could have easily publicly rejected her and she would have been stoned for adultery. And Matthew tells us he was going to give her a quiet divorce, divorce because he's a man of compassion as well as righteousness until the same angel visited him. We don't know how the parents reacted to this situation or the grandparents, but perhaps from friends and families dealing with similar situations, you might guess some of the anguish they went through. But despite all this, Mary faces the situation with faith, trusting in God. And it may have been wise for Joseph to take Mary away from her home village for the birth of the child, as she would not have to put up with the shame of not having the rejoicing and support of everyone. And it's rather ironic that the village choir would not have come to sing for this particular birth because of the stigma of the child's possible illegitimacy. How could this possibly be the Messiah? And you know, it actually fell to the angels to fulfill that tradition. It was the angels 
who heralded this child's birth. And she'd have had the child without the comfort of relatives. And look, as a mere male, a mere male, it's interesting to note that when each of my children was born, my mother-in-law, not miraculously, my mother-in-law appeared. God bless her. And that was a great comfort to Chris and, and to me and the other kids, because at least they got fed. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a good dad, I think. Well, I think. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Boy, am I digging a hole for myself. But it took courage for Mary to face all this with only Joseph, away from all her support structures. And you know, Malcolm Muggeridge questions whether it would have been much different today, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to fix mistakes that may bring embarrassment to families. He says, it's a point of fact, extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation needing a saviour more perhaps than any that had ever existed would be too humane too humane to allow one to be born. Maybe the only thing that would have stopped that in our day is that Mary is a woman of faith and courage. And she would have said no. Courage and faith exemplify Mary throughout the gospel accounts. When she goes to the temple a week after Jesus' birth, Simeon, the one person in the Christmas story, who seems to be able to look beyond the child to see the shadow of the cross, tells Mary that a sword will pierce her soul. And she stores even these things in her heart. In John's Gospel, we see her prepared to approach Jesus about the wine problem at the wedding in Cana, looking to do her, to do her son to do something uh, that would stop the hosts being embarrassed, even though his time had not come. Maybe in a moment of doubt and confusion, in Mark's gospel it tells us that she and Jesus' brothers came to, his, came to bring him home, fearing that he'd become deranged. And you know, it actually takes courage to question what you've stored up in your heart. It actually takes the courage of faith to be able to wrestle with doubts. That's a courageous face, faith that will face those things. She is a widow and had come to cope with the sorrow and the pain of her husband dying young. She is there at the cross as her son is brutally and unjustly crucified and she receives his kindness as Jesus asked his much beloved friend to care for his most beloved mother. I even wonder if she was there in the upper room at Pentecost, although, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us that. She shares her story and what she has known and experienced with Luke. And it was included in the gospel, along with a song which would have become more and more poignant as time had gone on. This is a woman of faith and courage that God chose to carry and nurture his only begotten son. She is at all levels a gospel carrier 
and a gospel teller, a witness to Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And for us today, there are two things that I want to draw from Mary. Firstly, that we need both faith in God and the courage to live that faith out. Seeing the kingdom of God being born into the world today not only takes convictions, faith convictions, it takes the courage of our convictions. Our faith needs to be put in action. Mary's words, I am your servant, may it happen to me as you said, are not words of passive uh, uh, resignation to fate. They are an active embrace of God's will and purposes, despite the challenges and the dangers. Allowing a new reality, a new hope to have birth and life through her. And that is God's call to us as well. And it takes courage and faith to allow God's kingdom to be born in our lives, to be our priority. For example, in Mary's song, it tells us that the good news of Jesus Christ will mean that the poor will receive their fill and the rich go away empty-handed. And we tend to want to think that the rich are blessed, that we are blessed in this country with what we have, but the gospel's call on people who have much is that much is expected. And Jesus calls us to side with the poor and the powerless in our world. And it takes courage to go against the flow of consumerism and materialism and simply being safe and comfortable to do that. It takes courage to speak up and say that we follow a different set of values, a different truths, a different king when the situation demands it. To sing Mary's song. And it takes faith and courage to be prepared to act and live in a way that reflects Jesus knowing the resistance we will face, the possible scorn and being written off. Secondly, we need to realise that God is able to use the humble and lowly to achieve great things for him in our world and place. I once said in a sermon that Mary was just like us, and boy, did I get a tongue lashing from a very fiery South American woman with a Catholic background. And there's nothing as fiery as a fiery South American woman. Uh, maybe South African women come close. <laughs> but she had a Catholic background. And, and she was angry with me for saying that Mary was just like us because she'd been taught that Mary was special and unique and that she'd been exalted to her sort of self being some, somehow the product of a immac- immaculate conception herself. But scripture does not substantiate that. It does not affirm and acknowledge. It does affirm and acknowledge that she's favoured amongst all women. And I did and have said today her faith and courage are amazing. However, the fact that a young Jewish girl of faith could be chosen to bear the Son of God shows that we too, whoever we are, how lowly we are, uh, when we have faith, can be used to achieve God's purposes and plans in the world if we will be prepared to respond with faith and courage to his call on us, to follow and witness to Mary's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, born of Mary, crucified and raised to life again. And we know that it's not an easy road. It's met with uh, suspicion and disdain. It leads down a road where our hearts as well just may be well pierced. It is the road that leads us to have faith. It is the road that needs us to have faith and courage, the faith and courage of Mary. So let's pray.